at this at this time i'd like to as i said offer some reflections on the teachings and the practice that we're engaged in and uh it was kind of curious for me as we were coming coming into the meditation and uh settling down and i was rather enjoying having the opportunity to uh to practice with you and having given a few instructions i left my microphone open initially and uh then started to enjoy the sound of some birds in the trees and um I was thinking, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe the uh, everyone else will be able to hear those birds. There's some, some, you know, beautiful bird song. That's rather nice. I feel kind of happy that I can share that, you know, good fortune. And and then one of my neighbours starts talking on the telephone, on their phone in the garden, and they're, you know, um, talking rather loudly. And I start thinking, oh, I, I don't really want people to have to listen to that. And um, I wish they wouldn't do it. And I could notice myself becoming a little sort of frustrated, maybe. Um, someone's just put in the chat rather sweetly that they heard the birds, but not the neighbour. But anyway, um, I invite, if it's okay with you, not to use the chat while I'm offering reflections, because it's even though it's fine that you said that, thank you. Um, but just going forward, it's easier for perhaps for me and for everyone else as well, if you hold any um, responses you have to when I've, um, paused at the end and then you can uh, if you wish offer a response or observation but uh, just that that kind of thing of um, at one moment it's how lovely there's some birds and how nice I get to share this and then oh there's a neighbor just doing what you know people normally do quite fine talking about something and you know at first I thought oh they're a little loud do they need to talk that loud and then of course I heard they were talking about something that was difficult for them and um it was a situation of some concern and I, I rather than being sort of mildly kind of, why do they have to talk so loud? I was wondering, ah, oh, this person's got a difficult situation and just really interesting to see what experience is like because sitting here in a way, listening to the sounds is a little bit like sitting in meditation and receiving our experience. We, we just start to notice there's various things that happen we have various responses to them. Some things we might like, some things we might not. And we also can have some relationship, and certainly I did in that situation for, you know, what our function in relationship to this is, some, some question. And in fact, as uh, the conversation in one um, neighbor's garden got louder, then another conversation started and the, the neighbor on the other side, um, somebody else on their mobile phone. And at that point, I decided to mute my microphone because um, even if as meditators, you might not mind listening to my neighbors. I thought my neighbors probably wouldn't want a hundred people listening to their conversation and they wouldn't know it. So I thought best I mute this and um, I'll just listen by myself. Uh, so kind of interesting though, those moments where we talk about or reflect on being open to experience moments where we might make a choice to say, Hmm, that's enough. I think maybe I'll turn away or in this case, uh, mute that particular experience. And this is relevant, I think, because really the, the question that is at the heart of what we do, not just here on a retreat, but in our lives really is what is it that leads to what we're most interested in? What is it that, enables us to find, discover, connect with, or be in touch with that which we care about most deeply. And there may be a range of different ways we 
think about or understand or would express our own sense of what it is that's important to us, what it is that we care about, what it is that we're interested in the deepest sense of that, what is we're most interested in for our lives. And this really is the question, or we could say a question very much at the heart of what we engage in when we engage in spiritual practice, when we come into a retreat. Like we all, we all share an interest in well-being, in happiness and fulfillment. There's different ways we might articulate what that is or we might, different ways we might imagine how that might come about or what that would look like if it should come about. But there is something universal about this for us all. And the question that arises really is, what serves and what supports us in moving towards and making contact with or in deepening our relationship that, with that which we most care about, value, love, or feel to be important in our lives? We can talk about this in terms of happiness, in terms of looking for happiness. And, of course, our world tends to suggest to us that happiness is something we get in our culture and our society by the accumulation and the manipulation of experience and things, and perhaps other people too. That it's somehow about controlling what's going on and fitting it into the idea or the model of what we would wish for or prefer. And yet this doesn't necessarily work out for us as an effective or successful strategy. I've been struck over this time of, um, in a way, lockdown, at least in the UK, where we've not been, uh, or we've been really asked, in fact, required to not do so much. How many of the activities that we normally engage in we've let go of and been required to? And I think probably many of us found that we might miss them to a certain degree, but not as much as we might have thought. It's interesting to give up shopping as an entertainment activity or as a sort of a fulfillment activity and just see what it's like to be left with ourselves and to ourselves. And of course, not always easy. We may feel lonely or bored, but we may also have the opportunity to connect more deeply with our own lives in this situation. And, and with the questions here, that the question of, you know, what is happiness, fulfillment, meaningfulness? What gives that to our lives? How is it cultivated? How is it attained? And it's not something we're necessarily entitled to by the fact that we're born because we can see that it may not be what's arisen. It may not be what we see in our life or the life of others. And yet, at the same time, it's not something that we're somehow to blame for, that it's my fault that that's the case or someone else's fault that that's the case. Because it seems to me we haven't necessarily been taught or shown or learnt what it is that truly brings the deepest happiness. And if we don't understand what brings it, brings it about, what are the conditions for it arising, then it's not surprising if we aren't always successful in our pursuit of it and our seeking of, for this. 
And so I think it's probably a, a universal truth to suggest that we are all interested and, and we all wish to be happy and to be free of unhappiness. And yet we struggle to find our way with that. The Buddha, when reflecting upon the vast body of teachings he offered, in terms of stating it as concisely as he could, as he did in a number of different ways, one of the ways he said it was this. He said, I teach one thing and one thing only. Suffering and the end of suffering. And we can understand this as, in a way, suffering is, is that condition we experience in the absence of happiness. When we're not happy, when we're not feeling fulfilled, we experience something that's distressing and difficult. It's not just the overt suffering of difficult conditions, but the pain or the, the sorrow we feel at a lack of, of fulfillment, of ease, of peace, of abiding and well-being. And the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Now, it's kind of interesting, this reflection, this, this observation that the Buddha made, because you might hear it and think, well, that's curious. That sounds like two things. And a, a friend of mine um, was once reflecting on this and he observed, he thought, well, maybe the Buddha just taught, started off teaching just one thing, you know, just suffering and thought that would be the thing to talk about. And people weren't so interested. So he thought, oh, no, I better talk about the end of suffering as well. Because I think this is something we are interested in. This is something we care about. And yet it's not always the condition we find ourselves in. And so this, this path of teaching and practice invites us to contemplate the truth and the reality of that which is not easy for us. To turn towards and to include it but also to do so as a part of a process and a journey of practice in which we also come to understand how to transform this condition of difficulty, of struggle, of experience that is hard to bear, of the absence of happiness, we could say, how to find happiness. And I don't mean by this just the happiness of kind of feeling some kind of, kind of always uplifted, bright um, sort of cheerful condition, but the deeper happiness of, of feeling at peace, feeling a sense of, of meaningfulness, of value, of connection in our lives. And this, this path of practices is concerned with this. I, I, when I was first um, traveling in Asia and uh, encountered these teachings and practices and found myself immediately drawn to want to spend my time, and in fact, all my time, um, engaged in studying and practicing in this way. I, I struggled a little bit to find ways to, to share with friends and family back home in New Zealand where I'd grown up what it was I was doing and why it was I was doing it. Because it's kind of hard to explain what this is about to someone who hasn't engaged in it. It doesn't quite make sense in all sorts of ways. And what I would find myself saying is that, well, this is, this is really happiness training as far as I can see. This is happiness training. And the Buddha himself once observed of this teaching and practice, he said, this is the path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness. 
And the highest happiness is peace. And so this may be something that resonates for us, that we, we're interested in, that we're curious about. And this, when we talk about this, what we can see is this, these qualities, we might talk about peace or happiness, they're in a way conditions of our inner life, our heart and our mind. And it's this that matters to us so deeply. The Buddha spoke of this as something we can engage with through practice to transform. And he spoke of different areas and elements that are essential in this path of practice and transformation. And I'd like to offer some reflections on this because for me, my encounter with these teachings was really the process whereby I came to understand for myself what it is that brings happiness, what it is that offers true and abiding peace and a sense of meaning and well-being in life that isn't so much dependent on whether things are going the way I want them to, whether they're always comfortable or easy, because, of course, they're not always that way. And so a teaching and a practice that points towards a deeper happiness and well-being that is not dependent upon the conditions and the circumstances of our lives, which, of course, we can't control, as we see. And it's been, I think, a remarkable learning and lesson for us, not just individually, personally, um, but also collectively as a culture, as a community, as a society, to see how a simple change can take place in the conditions and circumstance, and suddenly... So many things are different. And in the sort of the, the global scale of the COVID-19 pandemic, saying, look, oh, yes, just one particular microorganism comes into contact with human society and suddenly, and there are millions and billions of different organisms, and this particular one suddenly comes into contact with human society and so much we have to attend to differently. So much vulnerability is revealed, so much danger, so much loss and grief and struggle and sorrow and loneliness and pressure and uncertainty just from this. And it points to us, I think, it points us to a certain vulnerability in the human condition and, and experience which we need to understand. And that we can therefore, I think, feel quite naturally called to look more deeply into our lives to see what is possible for us. And the Buddha spoke of this in many different ways. One of the foundations he spoke of for well-being and happiness was something he said, it's not dependent on what's going on around you or even what's happening to you. It was the practice of sharing of generosity, of sharing what we have. It's curious to me, and I find it also lovely, that when he encountered people who would ask what he was interested in or concerned about and what he was doing, the Buddha didn't necessarily just jump straight into teaching about meditation or some profound spiritual understanding. He often would just ask people some simple questions, and, and beginning with the question, 
So tell me, friends, what's it like for you when somebody gives something to you? Someone just freely offers you something out of generosity or kindness. And, and people would reliably report as perhaps we ourselves would, oh, it's actually rather nice. It's lovely. It makes me feel good. And maybe we recognize this. Oh, there's something lovely about being given something as, as a gift, as an offering. And we know this, we recognize this. It's obvious to us. And he would then just ask, so, oh yeah, and so what's it like for you in the wish to give something when you can actually express generosity and share something with another? What's that like for you to share some food or some, some gift or some, some offering, even just time or, or, or care? Wouldn't have to even be a material thing. And, and people's response, again, as we might recognize ourselves, oh yeah, it's, there's something lovely about giving. There's something lovely about what happens for us when we're in a place where we can share with others. And he would then go on to say, yes, this points to something at the heart of what it is to be human beings. We actually get happiness from sharing. It's one of the fundamental wisdoms of life. Our well-being can be supported, our happiness can be supported by sharing. There's something that happens when we come to practice together here on this retreat. We're sharing with each other our time, our space, our dedication, our commitment. It's not like we've given anybody anything. We can't, you know, pass things through the Zoom. We can't give, you know, any material thing through the Zoom channel. But we are at the same time sharing something with each other by way of support, by way of mutual interest and care and dedication. And what's interesting to me is that there's something really uplifting and lovely about that, that people regularly comment on. How nice it is to come and do this with others. We receive something in doing it with others. We receive something from them. And we also give something to them. And so there's a, a sharing that takes place. And this quality of sharing is something that we can practice, cultivate, and develop because it's always possible for us. Sometimes we can practice meditation and yoga and engage in sort of profound contemplations. And other times it isn't always possible for us. We have to do other things. But finding ways to make offerings, to give and share of what we have is something we can always turn back to. And I noticed just in the in the process during the meditation before the talk, where, as I said, I started to feel slightly sort of just a little bit of annoyance with the, the person talking. And it wasn't so much that I minded the sound because I've practiced a lot with listening to people's voices and I'm all right with that. It was more that I wanted to be able to turn my microphone on so that I could share the beautiful bird song with everybody. And I was a bit annoyed that I couldn't without also, I thought, sharing the sound of this conversation. And so it was this sort of, I wanted to do that. And so, of course, there's some sort of, I'm getting attached a little bit, you can see, to that. But what, what was really interesting there was that the point where I heard, oh, this person's actually talking about something that's difficult for them. And in a sense, in that moment, my heart opened and it was like, oh, it was almost like an offering them the space. Oh, sure, you can have the space. I could feel myself wanting to give something to them and then actually feeling very warmly towards this person. 
And of course, that's not always what happens. You know, I'm not trying to say this is some example of how you're supposed to do it because it doesn't always happen that way for me either. But more just illustrating that possibility of, of a sense of offering, of, of generosity, how that, how that comes and how that's something incredibly powerful for us. It uplifts us in so many ways. And it's something we can always find a way to practice. So in the day when we maybe need to be busy and can't be engaging in the yoga or the meditation or formal practice, we might just ask, is there some way in which there's some offering I can make at this time that just connects me with my heart, connects me with those around me? Even just a kind word to someone can have that quality of just sharing, extending, sharing of humanity, essentially can be very powerful. And this is really a foundation for happiness. And the Buddha spoke also of, of non-harming. We touched on this um, last night and this morning, the precepts, the ethical guidelines of, of restraining from the kinds of actions that can hurt each other. Understanding we're so sensitive as human beings. We can be impacted so easily. And, and wanting to live our lives in a way in which we align ourselves with the principle that if I wouldn't wish things, certain things to happen to me or to be done to me, doesn't it seem to make sense that I wouldn't do those to other people either? To do unto others as I would have them do unto me, to use that sort of old, I think, biblical phrase. And something something about that very beautiful not of course the, these wisdoms aren't just within the teachings of the buddhist tradition but here in the way i'm kind of entering and speaking about them this is how they're unfolded this understanding of our relatedness with others and our sensitivity for others that if we act in ways that cause harm it leaves us ourselves in a place of regret and sorrow and a sense of unease it's really not unusual when we sit down in meditation and if we haven't practiced for some time or if we're beginning in meditation anew or, or, or for the first time, that sometimes what we become aware of are things that we feel concerned about of our own actions and things we're concerned about of others' actions. We see how powerful it is, how other people's actions have impacted us and how our own actions have impacted others' and ourselves. And when we act in ways that cause harm, it actually creates suffering for ourselves as well as others. To contemplate this, to consider this, to be aware of this, to see, oh, even when I don't act on all the thoughts that arise in my mind, if I identify with thoughts of anger or ill will towards others, I see it's painful. Or of, of a kind of a, a selfish greediness where I might take something in disregard that someone else doesn't have enough. And we've all done these things, so it's not to judge that. I've certainly done these things. But to see that, oh, we do them in our own place of fear or our own place of neediness or our own sort of confusion at times. And that 
when we recognize that it doesn't lead to happiness, we naturally want to find ways to restrain those patterns of action that cause harm and suffering to others and to ourselves. And, and understanding this, we can see also that the deep levels of happiness that we wish for are dependent upon being able to orient our actions towards harmlessness or non-harming and towards the cultivation of what contributes to the well-being of others and ourselves. But we can't just do that easily always because so often our actions are driven by unconscious patterns of reactivity and habit. And so part of what we cultivate here in terms of being mindful, in terms of being present, is to be able to make choices about the actions we take and equally about the reactions, the inner reactions that we identify with or reinforce and validate. Understanding that certain patterns within ourselves, if we don't attend to them, lead to suffering for ourselves and others. And so, so this is a, a process of compassionate reflection, of beginning to consider both our outer actions of speech and of body, but also our inner actions of intentionality. And the, the words we use, likewise, when we're speaking to ourselves in our practice and in the, in the solitude of our inner engagement, to see often there can be expressions of unkindness or harshness. As someone was speaking about earlier today, we can be quite cruel to ourselves at times. And, and an intention of non-harming would suggest that we might want to cease to engage with ourselves in such ways, equally as we would wish to cease to engage with others in that way. And so this, this process of being present gives us a possibility to make some choices that we otherwise can't make. If we're mindful, if we're here, then and only then can we really be confident in the ethical component of our choices because it gives us that opportunity to pause and reflect before we act. And, and in this way, it's incredibly powerful and transformative to allow ourselves to feel and to resonate with the vulnerability of others who can be impacted by ourselves, equally as we resonate with the vulnerability of ourselves in our, the ways we are impacted by others. And to see we share this with each other, this connects us. This shows to us something about the shared nature of our human experience. And in fact, not just our human experience, but the sh experience we share with all of life which is likewise vulnerable to harm. And wishing for safety and well-being. So with this, it's important to understand that there's a learning process in which we make mistakes in terms of our ethical behavior in that we make mistakes and um, at times harm others or ourselves. We do that. It's pretty much inevitable. But to have a sense of 
taking this as a process of learning rather than somehow trying to get it right and be perfect from the beginning so that we actually make some space for ourselves to explore. It's a little bit like when we're young and before we're supposedly grown up, you know, that thing that we're supposed to have done when we turned 18 or 20, or maybe we thought we should have done it when we were 16 or, you know, or whenever it is we thought we were supposed to have grown up because people were telling us grow up or you should have grown up. We don't grow up. Our bodies grow up at a certain point. Maybe we're, you know, sometime in our teenage years for most of us. Um, they've grown about as far as they're going to go, at least in terms of height and basic frame. They might continue to grow in other ways, some of which we might be grateful for and others we might be less happy about through our lives. Those kinds of growing happen, but that sense of the body coming into its basic structure happens. But as human beings, we're not grown up. We're, we're actually still learning what it means to be a human being. And for me, what that suggests is we can give ourselves permission to explore, to make mistakes, which is what we do when we're learning and growing. We make mistakes, but we, we give allowance for that. Maybe we, even, we could even learn to honor that process. There's a wonderful story of a Zen student who'd been practicing for, for many years and uh, was given after um, many requests, the very precious opportunity to meet with the, the Zen master of the community, who is a very wise and respected practitioner, but also known for being kind of severe and a little bit scary. So the, 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 uh, the meditator, the Zen, Zen practitioner was very happy, but also just a little bit tense and going into the room to meet the Zen master who'd come especially to um, visit that community from, from the monastery far away where they normally lived. Um, and the, 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 um, the man who was, who was the, the practitioner, he came and he bowed down in front of her. She was a, a small woman, but her, her body was upright and her face was set in a sort of a firmness that, that didn't seem particularly friendly. And he, he said, Master, Master, I'm so grateful. And he knew he only had opportunity to ask one or two quick questions. He says, I'll try and be brief. He said, Master, can you tell me what's the most important thing to cultivate? And she looked at him. She said, wise judgment, good discernment. And he said, oh, thank you, Master. That's, that's really helpful. Thank you. Can you tell me how to cultivate? How do you cultivate wise judgment and good discernment? And the master goes, hmm. Experience. Oh, thank you. Yes, of course. Experience. That's how. Yes, I understand. He says, one more question, master. How do you get experience? She looks, hmm. Bad judgment. Poor discernment. And the student goes away, having been given, a, I think, a significant lesson. We learn by making mistakes, getting it wrong, not doing it perfectly first time. How can we expect ourselves to do that? It seems unreasonable and unsustainable, given our human condition.
Can we give ourselves the space here to learn from our experience? Both in terms of ethical practice, the endeavour to refrain from causing harm, knowing that we'll do so imperfectly, but nonetheless dedicating our intention in that regard, understanding it's important. But also with regard to the practice of cultivating the wholesome qualities of heart and mind. And I'd like to speak a little bit about the first element of this. And I'll, I'll continue with further elements um, subsequent evenings. But the, the first element of, of what the Buddha spoke of in terms of cultivation, he described the path as sharing, non-harming, and what we could call presence. Sorry, what we could call, that, that's the first element, what we could call cultivation. The language, he, the words he used was, was dana, which means generosity, as many of you will know, sila, which means non-harming, and the, the kind of restraint of action to care for and protect others, and bhavana. And bhavana is the word that's translated in our English language most commonly as meditation which is a little curious because it's actually not the best word to use. Um, meditation has associations from sort of, um, I don't know, from maybe the Middle Ages or later with a sort of a, a thinking about something really, thinking a lot about it, meditating on a subject, sort of more contemplating, cogitating, which is, of course, a useful and powerful activity. But what it's come to mean for many of us is what we've been doing in the, in the sitting um, meditation practice, this gathering of focus in the mind and actually the word that the buddha used bhavana translates more usefully as cultivation as bringing into being and it has this sense of both creating and discovering something that's possible for us and so there's there's a, a particular trajectory of cultivation of development and discovery that we're engaged in here and the first element of that is the cultivation, the development, and we could say the discovery of presence. And I'll, I'll speak more about the further elements of that, um, as I said, in um, subsequent nights. But this quality of presence, where we're learning what it means to be connected, to be awake, to be embodied in a conscious way. And this, this quality I, I spoke of, I think, on the first night of bodyfulness and heartfulness, together with mindfulness, this way of fully inhabiting heart, mind and body, in a way in which we're not sort of distant from them, not looking at them, but actually really intimate with our experience. This training that I spoke of as happiness training has its foundation of this this process of remembering to reconnect. And it's not an easy thing for us to see how enthusiastically our mind goes almost anywhere else, it seems, than where we are. And that this process is something which we can't just bring to an end by a choice or a decision or an act of will. It's like our attention is, it's a bit like as if it was a, a light or a light source that was unfocused and wavering, 
waving about. And we're learning to gather it, to focus it into steadiness, to steady it. And as we do so, as we come back again and again into the body, into the sense of here and now, noticing what has arisen, noticing where we've been, but not needing to resolve or sort out or fix too much of that. Just coming back again and again into the body to feel the breath, to feel the frame of our body sitting on the earth as we are. What starts to happen slowly is there's a gathering, there's a collecting, there's a settling that takes place. And uh, I used the, uh, the image this morning, and I can't remember if it was in the questions at the end of the meditation session or in the small group meeting talking about training a puppy. Um, but it's, it's a lovely and powerful image for this work, that it's like to be disciplined and firm with ourselves, but yet not harsh or in any way sort of judging ourselves for what happens in this process. Seeing if we can create a kindly environment in which we invite ourselves back again and again to be present, to connect, to begin from where we are. And when the mind goes wherever the mind goes, when you notice it, invite it back as you might invite a small, a young puppy that you're training to come back, to connect with you. And understanding that the puppy has its own nature. It will do what it does. Our mind has its own habit and tendency. It will do what it does, but it can be trained. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not in our control, but our intentional engagement with it makes a difference always. And in fact, what's interesting is that it's kind of a little bit mysterious, isn't it? What happens in that moment when we disappear and become lost? Like mostly we don't quite notice it or else we wouldn't do that. Of course, sometimes we see it happening. We think, hmm, oh, this looks like a juicy thing to think about. I think I'll go there. And we actively, intentionally allow ourselves to become distracted or disconnected. But more often what happens is we're not always aware of that moment. But at some point, rather mysteriously, we become aware again. It's like, oh, it's like the light comes on. But curiously, we didn't do that. It just happened, but not accidentally or randomly. It happened because of the intention that we've made to be present, to wake up, to come back. And so in that way, it continues to have an influence, even though the mind will do what the mind does. And what we start to notice is, oh, it's not just a random process going on. This movement of activity in the mind where we get drawn into the past or the future, where we become entangled at times with storylines of, of that which we wish for and that which we hope to avoid, mostly is where we find ourselves going. We see how we, we want the mind to be quiet. And yet at the same time, if the mind becomes quiet, it's not always easy for us because we're uncomfortable in that until we've learned to be comfortable. As, as the mind becomes quiet, there's often the sense of, oh gosh, what's happening? Or I'm not sure if this is okay. Perhaps sometimes it's a little scary if the thinking becomes quiet. And partly that's because 
as we become quieter, as we stop following the patterns and tendencies and habits of the mind, we can no longer rely on the story of our thinking to tell us who we are. When we don't hold on to those patterns and habits so tightly, we're left in a space that's more open, that's more fluid. And we're not always sure if that's okay. So distraction is generally not an accident. Again, it's not to judge it or to say we're at fault for it, but it's generally not an accident. Because much of where our mind goes is to do with establishing or reinforcing our sense of who we are. And I'll talk more about that as we go along. But I think what's important initially is to just notice what happens, to pause for a moment in the noticing of here I am. And not to take it as, oh, I shouldn't be here. I'm supposed to be being mindful of my breathing or mindful of my body. No, just pause a moment. Notice, oh, here is where I am. And this is the place from which your practice begins and continues. This is always the place from where our practice emerges. This noticing, this quality of, oh, here-ness, now-ness, thisness. And so part of what we learn to do as we practice is to be aware of what happens as we pay attention. The Buddha spoke a lot of wise attention, and, and here we're engaged in the process of training our attention. Attention is something that's remarkably powerful, but requires a, a firm, dedicated engagement with our, our, our attention to be trained to be then able to be directed in ways that are skillful and useful to us. And wise attention is that way of paying attention that leads to greater well-being. This is quite a revolution or revolutionary idea, I think, that the way we pay attention as well as what we pay attention to is primary in determining our well-being. And the ways we pay attention and the subjects of our attention, we have some choices about this. We can bring our attention into the body, moving it out of the realm of thinking. And if we do that regularly, we start to establish some ground in the simple embodied experience. And we'll find that this really serves our well-being. If we see that we're paying attention in a way that's kind of tight or harsh or demanding our experience to be a certain way, then this doesn't actually contribute to well-being. But if we pay attention with a sense of openness and interest, this actually supports an inner environment of openness and well-being. And so we can cultivate that. We can develop that with experiences where we find ourselves becoming lost or entangled in reactivity or in distress, perhaps patterns of thinking or emotional processes that are not easy for us, what we can see is that we can't just remove ourselves from them because they have some kind of 
aliveness or engagement for us but what we can do is bring the attention into the body and notice what does it feel like in my body when this is going on how can i make some space for that maybe it's not so useful to be really close to the intensity so we can back off a little bit if that's helpful maybe feel our feet on the ground or our bottom on the seat with the edges of our body where it feels more sort of neutral or maybe we find that just coming into the breathing and just taking a, a very conscious outbreath helps the mind settle, helps the emotional process to soften, to open. And these are skills we can learn, we can develop, that are the skills of, of the meditator, the art of being present, that we can develop as we practice together in this way. And I'm very aware that there's so much more I could and would like to say about this, but I'm going to pause in a moment because there's only so much we can take in and it's not so early in the day. But I'd like to share with you a, uh, a beautiful quotation from um, one of the sort of the much loved teachers of this tradition, uh, teacher Ajahn, which in fact Ajahn means teacher. So Ajahn Chah, who lived in Thailand in the 20th century and he, he, he once observed, he said, some people say to me, they, it seems that they think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. And he was saying this in response to someone asking, you know, how long should we sit? And we can often struggle with how long we're able to meditate for before we get distracted or before our body becomes uncomfortable. He said, people seem to think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. But I've seen chickens sitting on their eggs for days. He said, each person has his or her or their own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at 65, some at age 90. So too, your practices will not be identical. Do not think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Be mindful from when you wake up in the morning through all the activities of your day. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool. And you will see, you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So let's just sit quietly for a few minutes together, a few moments together.
So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in our understanding and our practice of generosity, of non-harming, and in our cultivation of presence and steadiness, of connection and attentiveness. May we find this way of being mindful and heartful and bodyful through our day. In the service of our own happiness and well-being, and in the happiness and well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.